Hi, everybody. Carla here. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of Carla Reads the Classics. As always, I welcome your questions, your comments, and suggestions at CarlaReadsTheClassics at gmail.com. I also invite you to post questions and answers on the Q&A link of the episode. If you enjoy the content here at Carla Reads the Classics, I ask you to please consider a small contribution to help the podcast grow. And now, without further delay, I give you the wonderful classic by Jane Austen, written more than 200 years ago in 1813, I believe, Pride and Prejudice. Chapter One. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. However little known the feelings or views of such a man may be on his first entering a neighborhood, this truth is so well fixed in the minds of the surrounding families that he is considered the rightful property of some one or other of their daughters. My dear Mr. Bennet, said his lady to him one day, have you heard that Netherfield Park is let at last? Mr. Bennet replied that he had not, but it is, returned she, for Mrs. Long has just been here and she told me all about it. Mr. Bennet made no answer. Do you not want to know who has taken it? cried his wife impatiently. You want to tell me and I have no objection to hearing it. That was invitation enough. Why, my dear, you must know, Mrs. Long says that Netherfield is taken by a young man of large fortune from the north of England, that he came down on Monday in a chase and four to see the place, and was so much delighted with it that he agreed with Mr. Morris immediately, that he is to take possession before Michaelmas, and some of his servants are to be here in the house by the end of the week. What is his name? Bingley. Is he married or single? Oh, single, my dear, to be sure, a single man of large fortune, four or five thousand a year. What a fine thing for our girls. How so? How can it affect them? My dear Mr. Bennet, replied his wife, how can you be so tiresome? You must know that I am thinking of his marrying one of them. Is that his design in the setting here, in the settling here? "'Design! Nonsense! How can you talk so? But it is very likely that he may fall in love with one of them, and therefore you must visit him as soon as he comes. I see no occasion for that. You and the girls may go, or you may send them by themselves, which perhaps will still be better, for as you are as handsome as any of them, Mr. Bingley may like you the best of the party.' My dear, you flatter me. I certainly have had my share of beauty, but I do not pretend to be anything extraordinary now. When a woman has five grown-up daughters, she ought to give over thinking of her own beauty. In such cases, a woman has not often much beauty to think of. But, my dear, you must go indeed and see Mr. Bingley when he comes into the neighborhood. It is more than I engage for, I assure you. But consider your daughters. Only think what an establishment it would be for one of them. Sir William and Lady Lucas are determined to go, merely on that account, for in general, you know, they visit no newcomers. Indeed, you must go, for it will be impossible for us to visit him if you do not. You are over-scrupulous, surely. I dare say Mr. Bingley will be very glad to see you, and I will send a few lines by you to assure him of my hearty consent to his marrying whichever he, chose, he chooses of the girls, though I must throw in a good word from my little Lizzie. 
I desire you will do no such thing. Lizzie is not a bit better than the others, and I am sure she is not half so handsome as Jane, nor half so good-humored as Lydia. But you are always giving her the preference. They have none of them much to recommend them, replied he. They are all silly and ignorant like other little girls, but Lizzie has something more of quickness than her sister's. Mr. Bennet, how can you abuse your own children in such a way? You take delight in vexing me. You have no compassion for my poor nerves. You mistake me, my dear. I have a high respect for your nerves. They are my old friends. I have heard you mention them without consideration these last twenty years at least. Mr. Bennet was so odd a mixture of quick parts, sarcastic humor, reserve, and caprice that the experience of three and twenty years had been insufficient to make his wife understand his character. Her mind was less difficult to develop. She was a woman of mean understanding, little information, and uncertain temper. When she was discontented, she fancied herself nervous. The business of her life was to get her daughters married. Its solace was visiting and news. Chapter 2 Mr. Bennet was among the earliest of those who waited on Mr. Bingley. He had always intended to visit him, though to the last always assuring his wife that he should not go, and till the evening after the visit was paid, she had no knowledge of it. It was then disclosed in the following manner. Observing his second daughter employed in trimming a hat, he suddenly addressed her with, "'I hope Mr. Bingley will like it, Lizzie.' We are not in a way to know what Mr. Bingley likes, said her mother resentfully, since we are not to visit. But you forget, Mama, said Elizabeth, that we shall meet him at the assemblies and that Mrs. Long promised to introduce him. I do not believe Mrs. Long will do any such thing. She has two nieces of her own. She is a selfish, hypocritical woman, and I have no opinion of her. No more have I said Mr. Bennet, and I am glad to find that you do not depend on her serving you. Mrs. Bennet deigned not to make any reply, but unable to contain herself, began scolding one of her daughters. Don't keep coughing so, Kitty, for heaven's sake. Have a little compassion of my nerves. You tear them to pieces. Kitty had no discretion in her coughs, said her father. She times them ill. I do not cough for my own amusement, replied Kitty fretfully. When is your next ball to be, Lizzie? Tomorrow fortnight. Aye, so it is, cried her mother, and Mrs. Long does not come back till the day before, so it will be impossible for her to introduce him, for she will not know him herself. Then, my dear, you may have the advantage of your friend and introduce Mr. Bingley to her. Impossible, Mr. Bennet, impossible when I am not acquainted with him myself. How can you be so teasing? I honor your circumspection. A fortnight's acquaintance is certainly very little. One cannot know what a man really is by the end of a fortnight. But if we do not venture, somebody else will. And after all, Mrs. Long and her daughters must stand their chance. And therefore, as she will think it an act of kindness if you decline the office, I will take it on myself. The girls stared at their father. Miss Bennet said only, nonsense, nonsense. What could be the meaning of that emphatic exclamation, cried he? Do you consider the forms of introduction and the stress that is laid on them as nonsense? I cannot quite agree with you there. What say you, Mary? For you are a young lady of deep reflection, I know, and read great books and make extracts. 
Mary wished to say something sensible, but knew not how. While Mary is adjusting her ideas, he continued, let us return to Mr. Bingley. I am sick of Mr. Bingley, cried his wife. I am sorry to hear that, but why did you not tell me that before? If I had known such thing this morning, I certainly would not have called on him. It is very unlucky, but as I have actually paid the visit, we cannot escape the acquaintance now. The astonishment of the ladies was just what he wished, that of Mrs. Bennet perhaps surpassing the rest, though when the first tumult of joy was over, she began to declare that it was what she had expected all the while. How good it was in you, my dear Mr. Bennet, but I knew I should persuade you at last. I was sure you loved your girls too well to neglect such an acquaintance. Well, how pleased I am, and it is such a good joke, too, that you should have gone this morning and never said a word about it till now. Now, Kitty, you may cough as much as you choose, said Mr. Bennet, as, and as he spoke, he left the room, fatigued with the raptures of his wife. What an excellent father you have, girls, said she when the door was shut. I do not know how you will even make him amends for his kindness, or me either, for that matter. At our time of life, it is not so pleasant, I can tell you, to be making new acquaintances every day, but for your sakes, we will do anything. Lydia, my love, though you, though you are the youngest, I dare say Mr. Bingley will dance with you at the next ball. Oh, said Lydia stoutly, I am not afraid, for though I am the youngest, I am the tallest. The rest of the evening was spent in conjecturing how soon he would return Mr. Bennet's visit and determining when they should ask him to dinner. Chapter three. Not at all that Mrs. Bennet, however, with the assistance of her five daughters, could ask on the subject, was sufficient to draw from her husband any satisfactory description of Mr. Bingley. They attacked him in various ways with barefaced questions, ingenious suppositions, and distant surmises, but he eluded the skill of them all, and they were at last obliged to accept, to accept the second-hand intelligence of their neighbor, Lady Lucas. Her report was highly favorable. Sir William had been delighted with him. He was quite young, wonderfully handsome, extremely agreeable, and to crown the whole, he meant to be at the next assembly with a large party. Nothing could be more delightful. To be fond of dancing was a certain step towards falling in love, and very lively hopes of Mr. Bingley's heart were entertained. If I can but see one of my daughters happily settled at Netherfield, said Mrs. Bennet to her husband, and all of the others equally well married, I shall have nothing to wish for. In a few days, Mr. Bingley returned Mr. Bennet's visit and sat about ten minutes with him in his library. He had entertained hopes of being admitted to a sight of the young ladies of, who, of whose beauty he had heard much, but he saw only the father. The ladies were somewhat more fortunate, for they had the advantage of ascertaining from an upper window that he wore a blue coat and rode a black horse. An invitation to dinner was soon afterwards dispatched, and already had Mrs. Bennet planned, and already had Mrs. Bennet planned the courses that were to do credit to her housekeeping, when an answer arrived which deferred it all. Mr. Blink, Mr. Bingley was delighted to be in town the following day, and consequently, unable to accept the honor of their invitation, etc. 
Mrs. Bennett was quite disconcerted. She could not imagine what business he could have in town so soon after his arrival in Herefordshire, and she began to fear that he might be always flying about from one place to another and never settled at, ne at Netherfield as he ought to be. Lady Lucas quieted her fears a little by starting the idea of his being gone to London only to get a large party for the ball, and the report soon followed that Mr. Bingley was to bring twelve ladies and seven gentlemen with him to the assembly. The girls grieved over such a number of ladies, but were comforted the day before by the ball, hearing that instead of twelve, he brought only six with him from London, his five sisters and a cousin. And when the party entered the assembly room, it consisted only of five altogether, Mr. Bingley, his two sisters, the husband of the eldest, and another young man. Mr. Bingley was good-looking and gentlemanlike. He had a pleasant countenance and easy, unaffected manners. His sisters were fine women with an air of decided fashion. His brother-in-law, Mr. Hurst, merely looked the gentleman, but his friend, Mr. Darcy, soon drew the attention of the room by his fine, tall person, handsome features, noble mien, and the report which was in general circulation within five minutes after his entrance of his having 10,000 a year. The gentleman pronounced him to be a fine figure of a man. The ladies declared he was much handsomer than Mr. Bingley, and he was looked at with great admiration for about half the evening till his manners gave a disgust which turned the tide of his popularity, for he was discovered to be proud, to be above his company, and above being pleased, and not at all his large estate in Derbyshire could then save him from having a most forbidding, disagreeable countenance, and being unworthy to be compared with his friend." Mr. Bingley had soon made himself acquainted with all the principal people in the room. He was lively and unreserved, danced every dance, was angry that the ball closed so early, and talked of giving one himself at Netherfield. Such amiable qualities must, must speak for themselves. What a contrast between him and his friend. Mr. Darcy danced only once with Mrs. Hurst and once with Miss Bingley, declined to be introduced to any other lady, and spent the rest of the evening in walking about the room, speaking occasionally to one of his own party. His character was decided. He was the proudest, most disagreeable man in the world, and everybody hoped that he would never come there again. Amongst the most violent against him was Mrs. Bennet, whose dislike of his general behavior was sharpened into particular resentment by his having slighted one of her daughters. Elizabeth Bennet had been obliged by the scarcity of gentlemen to sit down for two dances, and during part of that time Mr. Darcy had been standing near enough for her to hear a conversation between him and Mr. Bingley, who came from the dance for a few minutes to press his friend to join it. Come, Darcy, said he, I must have you dance. I hate seeing you standing by yourself in this stupid manner. You had much better dance. I certainly shall not. You know how I detest it, unless I am particularly acquainted with my partner. At such an assembly as this, it would be insupportable. Your sisters are engaged, and there is not another woman in the room whom it would not be a punishment to me to stand up with. I would not be so fastidious as you are, cried Mr. Bingley, for a kingdom. Upon my honor, I never met with so many pleasant girls in my life as I have this evening, and there are several of them you see, you see uncommonly pretty. 
"'You are dancing with the only handsome girl in the room,' said Mr. Darcy, looking at the eldest, Miss Bennet. "'Oh, she is the most beautiful creature I ever beheld. "'But there is one of her sisters sitting down just behind you, "'who is very pretty and I dare say very agreeable. "'Do let me ask my partner to introduce you.' "'Which do you mean?' "'And turning round, he looked for a moment at Elizabeth, "'till, catching her eye, he withdrew his own and coldly said, "'She is tolerable but not handsome enough to tempt me. "'I am in no humor at present to give consequence to young ladies "'who are slighted by other men. "'You had better return to your partner and enjoy her smiles, "'for you are wasting your time with me.' Mr. Bingley followed his advice. Mr. Darcy walked off, and Elizabeth remained with no very cordial feeling toward him. She told the story, however, with great spirit among her friends, for she had a lively, playful disposition which delighted in anything ridiculous. The evening together, altogether, passed off pleasantly to the whole family. Mrs. Bennet had seen her eldest daughter much admired by the Netherfield party. Mr. Bingley had danced with her twice, and she had been distinguished by her sisters. Jane was as much gratified by this as her mother could be, though in a quieter way. Elizabeth felt Jane's pleasure. Mary had heard herself mentioned to Miss Bingley as the most accomplished girl in the neighborhood, and Catherine and Lydia had been fortunate enough never to be without partners, which was all they had yet learned to care for at a ball. They returned, therefore, in good spirits to Longbourn, the village where they lived, and of which they were the principal inhabitants. They found Mr. Bennet still up. With a book he was regardless of time, and on the present occasion he had a good deal of curiosity as to the events of an evening which had raised such splendid expectations. He had rather hoped that his wife's views on the stranger would be disappointed, but he soon found out that he had a different story to hear. Oh, my dear Mr. Bennet, as she entered the room, we have had a most delightful evening, a most excellent ball. I wish you had been there. Jane was so admired, nothing could be like it. Everybody said how well she looked, and Mr. Bingley thought her quite beautiful and danced with her twice. Only think of that, my dear. He actually danced with her twice, and she was the only creature in the room that he asked a second time. First of all, he asked Miss Lucas, I was so vexed to see him stand up with her, but, however, he did not admire her at all. Indeed, nobody can, you know, and he seemed quite struck with Jane as she was going down the dance. So he inquired who she was and got introduced and asked her for the next two dance and asked her for the two next. Then the two-third he danced with Miss King and the two-fourth with Maria Lucas and the two-fifth with Jane again and the two-sixth with Lizzie and the Bollinger. If he had had any compassion for me, cried her husband impatiently, he would not have danced half so much. For God's sake, say no more of his partners. Oh, that he had sprained his ankle in the first place. Oh, my dear, I am quite delighted with him. He is so excessively handsome, and his sisters are charming women. I never in my life saw anything more elegant than their dresses. I dare say the lace upon Mrs. Hurst's gown... Here she was interrupted again. Mr. Bennet protested against any description of finery. She was therefore obliged to seek another branch of the subject and relate it with much bitterness of spirit and some exaggeration the shocking rudeness of Mr. Darcy. But I can assure you, she added, that Lizzie does not lose so much by not suiting his fancy, for he is a most disagreeable, horrid man, not at all worth pleasing. 
so high and so conceited that there are no that there was no enduring him. He walked here and he walked there, fancying himself so very great, not handsome enough to dance with. I wish you had been there, my dear, to have given him one of your set-downs. I quite detest the man. Chapter 4 When Jane and Elizabeth were alone, the former, who had been cautious in her praise of Mr. Bingley before, expressed to her sister just how much she admired him. He is just what a young man ought to be said she, sensible, good-humored, lively, and I never saw such happy manners, so much ease with such perfect good breeding. He is also handsome, replied Elizabeth, which a young man ought likewise to be, if he possibly can. His character is thereby complete. I was much, I was very much flattered by his asking me to dance a second time. I did not expect such a compliment. Did not you? I did for you. But that is one great difference between us. Compliments always take you by surprise and me never. What could be more natural than his asking you again? He could not help seeing that you were about five times as pretty as every woman in the room. No thanks to his gallantry for that. Well, he certainly is very agreeable and I give you leave to like him. You have liked many a stupider person. Dear Lizzie, Oh, you are a great deal too apt, you know, to like people in general. You never see a fault in anybody. All the world are good and agreeable in your eyes. I never heard you speak ill of a human being in your life. I would not wish to be hasty in censoring anyone, but I always speak what I think. I know you do, and it is that which makes the wonder with your good sense to be so honestly blind to the follies and nonsense of others. Affection affectation and candor is common enough. One meets with it everywhere. But to be candid without ostentation or design, to take the good of everybody's character and make it still better and say nothing of the bad belongs to you alone. And so you like this man, sisters, too, do you? Their manners are not quite equal to his. Certainly not at first, but they are very pleasing women when you converse with them. Miss Bingley is to live with her brother and keep his house, and I am much mistaken if we shall not find a very charming neighbor in her. Elizabeth listened in silence, but was not convinced. Their behavior at the assembly had not been calculated to please in general, and with more quickness of observation and less pliancy of temper than her sister, and with a judgment too unassailed by any attention, and with... To herself, she was very little disposed to approve them. They were, in fact, very fine ladies, not deficient in good humor, and when they were pleased, nor in the power of making themselves agreeable when they chose it, but proud and conceited. They were rather handsome, had been educated in one of the first private seminaries in town, had a fortune of 20,000 pounds, were in the habit of spending more than they ought, and of associating with people of rank, and were therefore in every respect entitled to think well of themselves and meanly of others. They were of a respectable family in the north of England, a circumstance more deeply impressed on their memories than that their brother's fortune and their own had been acquired by trade. Mr. Bingley inherited property to the amount of nearly a hundred thousand pounds from his father, who had intended to purchase an estate, but did not live to do it. Mr. Bingley intended it likewise, and sometimes made choice of his country, but as he was now provided with a good house and the liberty of a manor, it was doubtful to many of those who knew best the 
the easiness of his temper, whether he might not spend the remainder of his days at Netherfield and leave the next generation to purchase. His sisters were anxious for his having an estate of his own, but though he was now only established as a tenant, Miss Bingley was by no means unwilling to preside at his table, nor was Mrs. Hurst, who had married a man of more fashion than fortune, less disposed to consider his house at her home when it suited her. Mr. Bingley had not been of age two years when he was tempted by an accidental recommendation to look at Netherfield House. He did look at it and into it for half an hour. He was pleased with the situation and the principal rooms, satisfied with what the owner said in its praise, and took it immediately. Between him and Darcy, there was a very steady friendship, in spite of great opposition of character. Bingley was endeared to Darcy by the easiness, openness, and dulcity of his temper, though no disposition could offer a greater contrast to his own, and though with his own he never appeared dissatisfied. On the strength of Darcy's regard, Bingley had the firmest reliance, and of his judgment the highest opinion. In understanding, Darcy was the superior. Bingley was by no means deficient, but Darcy was clever. He was at the same time haughty, reserved, and fastidious, and his manners, though well-bred, were not inviting. In that respect, his friend had greatly the advantage. Bingley was sure of being liked wherever he appeared. Darcy was, continu was continually giving offense. The manner in which they spoke of the Meryton Assembly was sufficiently characteristic. Bingley had never met with more pleasant people or prettier girls in his life. Everybody had seemed most kind and attentive to him. There had been no formality, no stiffness. He had soon felt acquainted with all in the room, and as to Miss Bennet, he could not conceive an angel more beautiful. Darcy, on the contrary, had seen a collection of people in whom there was little beauty and no fashion, for none of whom he had felt the smallest interest, and from none received either attention nor pleasure. Miss Bennet, he acknowledged, to be pretty, but she smiled too much. Mrs. Hurst and her sister allowed it to be so, but still they admired her and liked her and pronounced her to be a sweet girl and one whom they would not object to know more of. Miss Bennet was therefore established as a sweet girl, and their brother felt authorized by such commendation to think of her as he chose. And that brings us to the end of chapter four of Jane Austen's wonderful classic, Pride and Prejudice. Thanks so much for listening here at Carla Reads the Classics, and I hope you return for more of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice here at Carla Reads the Classics. Until next time. Let's keep it steady, shall we? And jump right back into Pride and Prejudice. Chapter 5. Within a short walk of Longbourn lived a family with whom the Bennets were particularly intimate. Sir William Lucas had been formerly in trade in Meryton, where he had made a tolerable fortune and risen to the honor of knighthood by an address to the king during his mayoralty. The distinction had perhaps been felt too strongly. It had given him a disgust to his business and to his residence in a small market town, and in quitting them both, he had removed with his family to a house about a mile from Meryton, dominated from that period, Lucas Lodge, where he could think with pleasure of his own importance and, unshackled by his business, occupy himself solely in being civil to all the world. For, though elated by his rank, it did not render him supercilious. On the contrary, he was all attention to everybody. 
by nature inoffensive, friendly, and obliging, his presentation at St. James had made him courteous. Lady Lucas was a very good kind of woman, not too clever to be valuable, to be a valuable neighbor to Mrs. Bennet. They had several children, the eldest of them, a sensible, intelligent young woman, about 27, was Elizabeth's intimate friend. That the Miss Lucases and the Miss Bennets should meet to talk over a ball was absolutely necessary, and the morning after the assembly brought the former to Longbourn to hear and to communicate. You began the evening well, Charlotte, said Mrs. Bennet, with civil self-command to Miss Lucas. You were Mr. Bingley's first choice. Yes, but he seemed to like his second better. Yes, you, you mean Jane, I suppose, because he danced with her twice. To be sure, that did seem as if he admired her. Indeed, I rather believe he did. I heard something about it, but I hardly know what. Something about Mr. Robinson. Perhaps you mean that I over, overheard between him and Mr. Robinson. Did I not mention it to you? Mr. Robinson's asking him how he liked our Meryton's assemblies and whether he did not think they were a great many pretty women in the room and which he thought was the prettiest and his answering immediately to the last question. Oh, the eldest Miss Bennet, beyond a doubt, there cannot be two opinions on that point. Upon my word. Well, that is very decided indeed. That does seem as if, but however, it may all come to nothing, you know. My overhearings were more to the purpose than yours, Eliza, said Charlotte. Mr. Darcy is not so well worth listening to as his friend, is he? Poor Eliza, to be only just tolerable. I beg you not to put it into Lizzie's head to be vexed by his ill treatment, for he is such a disagreeable man that it would be quite a misfortune to be liked by him. Mrs. Long told me last night that he sat close to her for half an hour without once opening his lips. Are you quite sure, ma'am? Is not there a little mistake? said Jane. I certainly saw Mr. Darcy speaking to her. Ay, because she asked him at last how he liked Netherfield, and he could not help answering her, but she said he seemed quite angry at being spoken to. Miss Bingley told me, said Jane, that he never speaks much, unless among his intimate acquaintances. With them he is remarkably agreeable. I do not believe a word of it, my dear. If he had been so very agreeable, he would have talked to Mrs. Long. But I guess he, but I guess how, but I can guess how it was. Everybody says that he is eat up with pride. And I dare say he had heard somewhere that Mrs. Long does not keep a carriage and had come to the ball in a hack chase. I do not mind his talking to Mrs. Long, said Miss Lucas, but I wish she had danced with Eliza. Another time, Lizzie, said her mother, I would not dance with him if I were you. I believe, ma'am, I may safely promise you never to dance with him. His pride, said Miss Lucas, does not offend me so much as pride often does because there is an excuse for it. One cannot wonder that so very fine a young man, with his family, fortune, everything in his favor, should think highly of himself. If I may so express it, he has a right to be proud. That is very true, replied Elizabeth, and I could easily forgive his pride if he had not mortified mine. Pride, observed Mary, who piqued herself upon the solidity of her reflections, is a very common failing, I believe. By all that I have ever read, I am convinced that it is very common indeed, that human nature is particularly prone to it, and that there are very few of us who do not cherish a feeling of self-complacency on the score of some quality or other, real or imaginary. 
vanity, and pride are different things, though the words are often used synonymously. A person may be proud without being vain. Pride relates more to our opinion of ourselves. Vanity to what we have vanity to what we would have others think of us. If I were as rich as Mr. Darcy, cried a young Lucas, when who came with his sisters, I should not care how proud I was. I would keep a pack of foxhounds and drink a bottle of wine every day. Then you would drink a great deal more than you ought, said Mrs. Minnett, and if I were to see you at it, I should take away your bottle directly. The boy protested that she should not. She continued to declare that she would, and the argument ended only with the visit. Chapter 6 the ladies of Longbourn soon waited on those of Netherfield. The visit was soon returned in due form. Miss Bennet's pleasing manners grew on the goodwill of Mrs. Hurst and Miss Bingley, and though the mother was found to be intolerable and the younger sisters not worth speaking to, a wish of being better acquainted with them was expressed towards the two eldest. By Jane, this attention was received with the greatest pleasure, but Elizabeth still saw superciliousness in their treatment of everybody, hardly accepting even her sister, and could not like them, though their kindness to Jane, such as it was, had a value as arising in all probability from the influence of their brother's admiration. It was generally evident whenever they met that he did admire her, and to her it was equally evident that Jane was yielding to the preference which she had begun to entertain for him from the first, and was in a way to be very much in love, but she considered with pleasure that it was not likely to be discovered by the world in general, since Jane united with great strength of feeling, a composure of temper, and a uniform cheerfulness of manner which would guard her from the suspicions of the impertinent. She mentioned this to her friend, Miss Lucas. It may perhaps be pleasant, replied Charlotte, to be able to impose on the public in such a case, but it is sometimes a disadvantage to be so very guarded. If a woman conceals her affection with some skill from the object of it, she may lose the opportunity of fixing him, and it will then be put to poor consolation to believe the world equally in the dark. There is so much of gratitude or vanity in almost every attachment that it is not safe to leave any to itself. We can all begin freely. A slight preference is natural enough, but there are very few of us who have heart enough to be really in love without encouragement. And nine cases out of ten, a woman had better show more affection than she feels. Bingley likes your sister undoubtedly, but he may never do more than like her if she does not help him on." but she does help him on as much as her nature will allow. If I can perceive her regard for him, he must be a simpleton indeed not to discover it too. Remember, Eliza, that he does not know Jane's disposition as you do. But if a woman is partial to a man and does not endeavor to conceal it, he must find it out. Perhaps he must, if he sees enough of her. But though Bingley and Jane met tolerably often, it is never for too many hours together. And as they always see each other in large mixed parties, it is impossible that every moment should be employed in conversing together. Jane should therefore make the most of every half hour in which she can command his attention. When she is secure of him, there will be more leisure for falling in love as much as she chooses. Your plan is a good one, replied Elizabeth, where nothing is in question but the desire of being well married. And if I were determined to get a rich husband or any husband, I dare say I should adopt it. But 
These are not Jane's feelings. She is not acting by design. As yet, she cannot even be certain of the degree of her own regard, nor of its reasonableness. She has known him only a fortnight. She danced four dances with him at Meryton. She saw him one morning at his own house and has since dined with him in company four times. This is not quite enough to make her understand his character. Not as you represent it. Had she merely dined with him, she might only have discovered whether he had a good appetite. But you must remember that four evenings have also been spent together, and four evenings may do a great deal. Yes, these four evenings have enabled them to ascertain that they both like Ving Ut better than, than commerce. But with respect to any other leading characteristic, I do not imagine that much has been unfolded. Well, said Charlotte, I wish Jane success with all my heart, and if she were married to him tomorrow, I should think she has a good chance of happiness as if she were to be studying his character for a twelve-month. Happiness in marriage is entirely a matter of chance. If the dispositions of the parties are ever so well known to each other, or ever so similar beforehand, it does not advance their felicity in the least. They always continue to grow sufficiently, unlike afterwards, to have their share of vexation. And it is better to know as little as possible of the defects of the person with whom you are to pass your life. You make me laugh, Charlotte, but it is not sound. You know it is not sound and that you would never act in this way yourself. Occupied in observing, Mr. Bingley's attention to his sister Elizabeth was far from suspecting that she was herself becoming an object of some interest in the eyes of his friend. Mr. Darcy had at first scarcely allowed her to be pretty. He had looked at her without admiration at the ball, and when they next met, he looked at her only to criticize. But no sooner had he made it clear to himself and his friends that she hardly had a good feature in her face than he began to find it was rendered uncommonly intelligent by the beautiful expression of her dark eyes. To this discovery succeeded some others equally mortifying. Though he had detected with a critical eye more than one failure of perfect symmetry in her form, he was forced to acknowledge her figure to be light and pleasing, and in spite of his asserting that her manners were not those of the fashionable world, he was caught by their easy playfulness. Of this, she was perfectly unaware. To her, he was the only man who made himself agreeable nowhere, and who had not thought her handsome enough to dance with. He began to wish to know more of her, and as a step towards conversing with her himself, attended to her conversation with others. His doing so drew her notice. It was at Sir William Lucas's where a large party were assembled. What does Mr. Darcy mean, she said to Charlotte, by listening to my conversation with Colonel Foster? That is a question which Mr. Darcy only can answer. But if he does it any more, I shall certainly let him know that I see what he is about. He has a very satirical eye, and if I do not begin by being impertinent myself, I shall soon grow afraid of him. On his approaching them soon afterwards, though without seeming to have any intention of speaking, Miss Lucas defied her friend to mention such a subject to him, which immediately provoking Elizabeth to do it, she turned to him and said, did you not think, Mr. Darcy, that I expressed myself uncommonly well just now when I was teasing Colonel Foster to give us a ball at Meryton? With great energy, but it was always a subject which makes a lady energetic. You are severe on us. It will be her turn soon to be teased, said Miss Lucas. I am going to open the instrument, Eliza, and you know what follows. 
You are a very strange creature by way of a friend, always wanting me to play and sing before everybody and anybody. If my vanity had taken a musical turn, you would have been invaluable. But as it is, I would really rather not sit down before those who must be in the habit of hearing the very best performers. On Miss Lucas's persevering, however, she added, very well, if it must be so, it must. And gravely glancing at Mr. Darcy, there is a fine old saying which everybody here is, of course, familiar with. Keep your breath to cool your porridge, and I shall keep mine to swell my song. Her performance was pleasing, though by no means capital. After a song or two, and before she could reply to the entreaties of several that she would sing it again, she was eagerly succeeded at the instrument by her sister Mary, who having, in consequence of being the only plain one in the family, worked hard for knowledge and accomplishments, was always impatient for display. Mary had neither genius nor taste, and though vanity had given her had given her application, it had given her likewise a pedantic air and conceited manner which would have injured a higher degree of excellence than she had reached. Elizabeth, easy and unaffected, had been listened to with much more pleasure, though not playing half so well. And Mary, at the end of a song, concerto, was glad to purchase praise and gratitude by Scotch and Irish airs at the request of her younger sisters who, with some of the Lucases and two or three officers, joined eagerly in dancing at the end of the room. Mr. Darcy stood near them in silent indignation at such a mode of passing the evening to the exclusion of all conversation and was too much engrossed by his thoughts to perceive that Sir William Lucas was his neighbor, till Sir William thus began. What a charming amusement for for young people this, this is, Mr. Darcy. There is nothing like dancing after all. I consider it as one of the, fi- one of the first refinements of polished society. Certainly, sir, it has the advantage also of being in vogue amongst the less polished societies of the world. Every savage can dance. Sir William only smiled. Your friend performs delightfully. He continued after a pause on seeing Bingley join the group. And I doubt not that you are an adept in the science yourself, Mr. Darcy. You saw me dance at Meryton, I believe, sir. Yes, indeed, and received no inconsiderable pleasure from the sight. Do you often dance at St. James's? Never, sir. Do you not think it would be a proper compliment to the place? It is a compliment which I never pay to any place if I can avoid it. You have a house in town, I conclude. Mr. Darcy bowed. I had once some thought of fixing in town myself, for I am fond of superior society, but I did not feel quite certain that the air of London would agree with Lady Lucas. He paused in hope of an answer, but his companion was not disposed to make any, and Elizabeth, at that instant moving towards them, he was struck with the act of doing a very gallant thing and called out to her. "'My dear Miss Eliza, why are you not dancing? "'Mr. Darcy, you must allow me to present this young lady to you "'as a very desirable partner. "'You cannot refuse to dance. "'I am sure when so much beauty is before you.' "'And taking her hand, he would have given it to Mr. Darcy, "'who, though extremely surprised, was not unwilling to receive it, "'when she instantly drew it back and said with some discomposure to Sir William.' Indeed, sir, I have not the least intention of dancing. I entreat you not to suppose that I move this way in order to beg for a partner. Mr. Darcy, with grave propriety, requested to be allowed the honor of her hand, but in vain. Elizabeth was determined, nor did Sir William at all shake her purpose by his attempt at persuasion. 
You excel so much in dance, Miss Eliza, that it is cruel to deny me the happiness of seeing you. And though this gentleman dislikes the amusement in general, he can have no objection, I am sure, to oblige us for one half hour. Mr. Darcy is all politeness, said Elizabeth, smiling. He is indeed, but considering the inducement, my dear Miss Eliza, we cannot wonder at his compliance, for who would object to such a partner? Elizabeth looked archly and turned away. Her resistance had not injured her with the gentleman, and he was thinking of her with some complacency when thus accosted by Miss Bingley. I can guess the subject of your reverie. I should imagine not. You are considering how insupportable it would be to pass many evenings in this manner, in such society, and indeed I am, I am quite of your opinion. I was never more annoyed. The, insipi the insipidity. The insipidity, and yet the noise, the nothingness, and yet the self-importance of all those people, what I would give to hear your strictures on them. Your conjecture is totally wrong, I assure you. My mind was more agreeably engaged. I have been meditating on the very great pleasure in which a pair of fine eyes in the face of a pretty woman can bestow. Miss Bingley immediately fixed her eyes on his face and desired he would tell her what lady had the credit of inspiring such reflections. Mr. Darcy replied with great intrepidity, Miss Elizabeth Bennet. Miss Elizabeth Bennet, repeated Miss Bingley, I am all astonishment. How long has she been such a favorite? And play, and pray, when am I to wish you joy? That is exactly the question which I expected you to ask. A lady's imagination is very rapid. It jumps from admiration to love, from love to matrimony. In a moment, I knew you would be wishing me joy. Nay, if you are serious about it, I shall consider the matter is absolutely settled. You will be having a charming mother-in-law indeed, and of course she will always be at Pemberley with you. He listened to her with perfect indifference while she chose to entertain herself in this manner, and as his composure convinced her that all was safe, her wit flowed along. Chapter 7. Mr. Bennet's property consisted almost entirely of an estate of 2000 a year, which, unfortunately for his daughters, was entailed in default of heirs male on a distant relation, and their mother's fortune, though ample for her situation in life, could but ill supply the deficiency of his. Her father had been an attorney in Meryton and had left her four thousand pounds. She had a sister married to a Mr. Philip, who had been a clerk to their father and succeeded him in the business, and a brother settled in London in a respectable line of trade. The village of Longbourn was only a mile from Meryton, a most convenient distance for the young ladies who were usually tempted thither three or four times a week to pay their duty to their aunt and the milliner's shop just over the way. The two youngest of the family, Catherine and Lydia, were particularly frequent in these attentions. Their minds were more vacant than their sisters, and when nothing better offered, a walk to Meryton was necessary to amuse their morning hours and furnish conversation for the evening, and however bare of news the country in general might be, they always contrived to learn something from their aunt. 
At present, indeed, they were well supplied both with news and happiness by the recent arrival of a militia regiment in the neighborhood. It was to remain the whole winter, and Meryton was the headquarters. Their visits to Mrs. Phillips were now productive of the most interesting intelligence. Every day added something to their knowledge of the officers' names and connections. Their lodgings were not a secret, and at length they began to know the officers themselves. Mr. Phillips visited them all, and this opened to his nieces a store of felicity unknown before. They could talk of nothing but the officers, and Mr. Bingley's large fortune, the mention of which gave animation to their mother, was worthless in their eyes when opposed to the regimentals of an ensign. After listening one morning to their effusions on the subject, Mr. Bennett coolly observed, "'From all that I can collect by your manner of talking, you must be two of the silliest girls in the country.' I have suspected it some time, but I am now convinced. Catherine was disconcerted and made no answer, but Lydia, with perfect indifference, continued to express her admiration of Captain Carter and her hope of seeing him in the course of the day as he was going the next morning to London. I am astonished, my dear, said Mrs. Bennet, that you should be so ready to think your own children so silly. If I wish to think slightingly of anybody's children... It should not be of my own, however. If my children are silly, I must hope to be always sensible of it. Yes, but as it happens, they are all of them very clever. This is the only point I flatter myself on which we do not agree. I had hoped that our sentiments coincided in every particular, but I must so far differ from you as to think our two youngest daughters uncommonly foolish." My dear Mr. Bennett, you must not accept such girls to have this sense of their father and mother. When they get to our age, I dare say they will not think about officers any more than we do. I remember the time when I liked a red coat myself very well, and indeed, so I do still at my heart. And if a smart young colonel with five or six thousand a year should want one of my girls, I shall not say nay to him. And I thought Colonel Foster looked very becoming the other night at Sir William's and his regimentals. Mama! cried Lydia. My aunt says that Colonel Foster and Captain Carter do, do not so often go to Miss Watson's as they did when they first came. She sees them now very often standing in Clark's library. Mrs. Bennet was prevented replying by the interest, by the entrance of the footman with a note from Miss Bennet. It came from Netherfield and the servant waited for an answer. Mrs. Bennet's eyes sparkled with pleasure, and she was eagerly calling out while her daughters read, Well, Jane, who is it from? What is it about? What does he say? Well, Jane, make haste and tell us. Make haste, my love. It is from Miss Bingley, said Jane, and then read it aloud. My dear friend, if you are not so compassionate as to dine today with Louisa and me, we shall be in danger of hating each other for the rest of our lives, for a whole day's tete-a-tete between two women can never end without a quarrel. Come as soon as you can on receipt of this. My brother and the gentleman are to dine with the officers. Yours ever, Caroline Bingley. With the officers, cried Lydia. I wonder my aunt did not tell us of that. Dining out, said Miss, Mrs. Bennet. This is very unlucky. Can I have the carriage? said Jane. No, my dear, you'd better go on horseback because it seems likely to rain and then you must stay all night. That would be a good scheme, said Elizabeth, if you were sure they would not offer to send her home. Oh, but the gentleman will have Mr. Bingley's chaise to go to, to, go to Meryton and the hearse have no horses to theirs. 
I had much better, I had much rather go in the coach. But my dear, your father cannot spare the horses, I am sure. They are wanted in the farm, Mr. Bennett, are they not? They are wanted in the farm much oftener than I can get them. But if you have got them today, said Elizabeth, my mother's purpose will be answered. She did at last exhort from her father an acknowledgement that the horses were engaged. Jane was therefore obliged to go on horseback, and her mother attended her to the door with many cheerful prognostics of a bad day. Her hopes were answered. Jane had not been gone long before it rained hard. Her sisters were uneasy for her, but her mother was delighted. The rain continued the whole evening without intermission. Jane certainly could not come back. This was a lucky idea of mine indeed said Mrs. Bennet more than once, as if the credit of making it rain were all her own. Till the next morning, however, she was not aware of all the, of all the felicity of her contrivance. Breakfast was scarcely over when a servant from Netherfield brought the following note for Elizabeth. My dearest Lizzie, I find myself very unwell this morning, which I suppose is to be imputed on my getting wet through yesterday. My kind friends will not hear of my returning till I am better. They insist also on my seeing Mr. Jones. Therefore, do not be alarmed if you should hear of his having been to, of his having been to me and expecting a sore throat and headache. There is not much the matter with me. Yours, etc. Well, my dear, said Mr. Bennet, when Elizabeth had read the note aloud, if your daughter should have a dangerous fit of illness, if she should die, it would be a comfort to know that it was all in pursuit of Mr. Bingley and under your orders. Oh, I am not afraid of her dying. People do not die of little trifling colds. She will be taken good care of. As long as she stays there, it will all be very well. I would go and see her if I could have the carriage. Elizabeth, feeling really anxious, was determined to go to her, though the carriage was not to be had, and as she was no horsewoman, walking was her only alternative. She declared her resolution. How can you be so silly? cried her mother, as to think of such a thing and all this dirt. You will not be fit to be seen when you get there. I shall be very fit to see Jane, which is all I want. Is this a hint to me, Lizzie? said her father. To send for the horses? No, indeed, I do not wish to avoid the walk. The distance is nothing when one has a motive. Only three miles. I shall, I shall be back by dinner. I admire the activity of your benevolence, observed Mary, but every impulse of feeling should be guided by reason, and in my opinion, exertion should always be in proportion to what is required. We will go as far as Meryton with you, said Catherine and Ella. Elizabeth accepted their company, and the three young ladies set off together. If we may, if we make haste, said Lydia, as they walked along, perhaps we may see something of Captain Carter before he goes. In Meryton, they parted. The two youngest repaired to the lodgings of one of the officer's wives, and Elizabeth continued her walk alone, crossing field after field at a quick pace, jumping over stiles and springing over puddles with impatient activity, and finding herself at last within view of the house with weary ankles, dirty stockings, and a face glowing with the warmth of exercise. She was known. She was shown into the breakfast parlor where all but Jane were assembled and where her appearance created a great deal of surprise. That she should have walked three miles so early in the day in such dirty weather and by herself was almost incredible to Mrs. Hurst and Miss Bingley, and Elizabeth was convinced that they held her in contempt for it. She was received, however, very politely by them, and in their brother's manners there was something better than politeness. 
something better than politeness. There was good humor and kindness. Mr. Darcy said very little, and Mr. Hurst nothing at all. The former was divided between admiration of the brilliancy which exercise had given to her complexion and doubt as to the occasions justifying her coming so far alone. The latter was thinking only of his breakfast. Her inquiries after her sister were not very favorably answered. Miss Bennet had slept well, and though up, was very feverish and not well enough to leave her room. Elizabeth was glad to be taken to her immediately, and Jane, who had only been withheld by the fear of giving alarm or inconvenience from expressing in her note how much she longed for such a visit, was delighted at her entrance. She was not equal, however, to much conversation, and when Miss Bingley left them together could attempt little besides expressions of gratitude for the extraordinary kindness she was treated with, Elizabeth silently attended her. When breakfast was over, they were joined by the sisters, and Elizabeth began to like them herself when she saw how much affection and solicitude they showed for Jane. The apothecary came, and having examined his patient, said, as might be supposed, that she had caught a violent cold, and that they must endeavor to get the better of it, advised her to return to bed, and promised her some draughts. The advice was followed readily, for the feverish symptoms increased, and her head ached acutely. Elizabeth did not quit her room for a moment, nor were the other ladies often absent. The gentlemen being out, they had, in fact, nothing to do elsewhere. When the clock struck three, Elizabeth felt that she must go, and very unwillingly said so. Miss Bingley offered her the carriage, and she only wanted a little pressing to accept it when Jane testified such concern in parting with her that Miss Bingley was obliged to convert the offer of the chase to an invitation to remain at Netherfield for the present. Elizabeth most thankfully consented, and a servant was dispatched to Longbourn to acquaint the family with her stay and bring back a supply of clothes. That'll do it for Chapter 7 of Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. Thanks so much for listening here at Carla Reads the Classics. Until next time.